0: So today marks the end of our time together in Esther. Our story ends with an edict formalizing ongoing celebration. And it ends with a description of the power and the reach of the king. So recall, in parallel fashion, the way the story began was with a description of the king's power and of his reach, and with a celebration of the superficial beauty and wealth of the kingdom of Persia. And recall that the king and his officials wanted to gawk at Queen Vashti, but she refused to submit herself to such demeaning perversity. But Vashti's refusal sets in motion a number of edicts and events. Esther becomes queen. Mordecai saves the king. Haman seeks to destroy the Jews. Esther mediates. God intervenes, rather comically, I might add. A reversal is initiated. Mordecai is exalted. Haman is executed. Esther pleads for her people. The reversal continues, and yet, as chapter 9 opens, an edict of utter destruction still stands against the covenant people of God. Which brings us to today's passage. Now, given what we've already learned about Esther, as I read, I want you to especially be thinking about the completion of this reversal the celebration, what we might call the thrill of victory for the people of God, and the just brutal agony of defeat for those who oppose God. Hear then the word of our covenant-keeping God, our passages Esther 9 and Esther 10. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ashuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also killed Parshandatha and Dalphin and Espatha and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel... The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces... "...also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness." Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ossuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. The enemy of the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plans that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written... In this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Asherah in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ashuarius imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ashuarius and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So Lord, please reveal the greatness of your glory now. Through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the central idea expressed at the close of Esther is simple. The reversal God orchestrated for his people is worthy of ongoing celebration. The reversal God orchestrated for his people is so great, so glorious, it's worthy of ongoing celebration. So let's break down our passage like this. In chapter 9 in verses 1 through 16, we'll see that the Israelites had to fight for their right to party, So God came up with that way before the Beastie Boys. And if you don't know who the Beastie Boys are, you're better off for it. <laughs> in verses 17 through 32, we'll see the reason for the season. That is the holiday or the season, the celebration of Purim. And then in verses 1 through 3, we'll see that the more things change, the more they stay the same. But let's just begin with our first section. Unhindered joy, even at the expense of our enemies, is a natural response to victory. Professional athletes in team sports demonstrate this every year. It's as if professional athletes work and train and discipline themselves all year long so that when they destroy their opponents and become champions, they can jump around like little kids who just won a little league game. But of course sport is one thing. And war is another thing altogether. It's one thing after a sports win to say, we just killed them. Or after your t-ball game to say, we just slaughtered them. It's another thing in war to mean that literally. Chapter 9, the full reversal is brought to completion in a very stark way. Verse 1, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. In other words, on this day of great conflict, the Jews, the people of God, won. They won The victory, it was cause to celebrate. They earned the right to jump around like little kids. But of course, the joyous victory of the Jews came at the expense of their enemies. It meant that more than 75,000 people throughout the empire were killed, literally slaughtered. And all ten sons of Haman were thrust through with swords and then they were impaled on wooden gallows and put on display as a signal of total destruction to maximize their shame. The reality is that the people of God were celebrating not just because they were victorious, not just because they defeated their enemies, not just because they routed their enemies. The people of God were celebrating because they had killed, destroyed, and annihilated their enemies. So how are your 21st century sensibilities Faring right about now. The truth is, it's actually good for evil to be destroyed. Now, despite the fact that there's plenty of evidence in America and in this world for the curse and the fall, very few of us. Very few of us have actually fought in a war, or in hand-to-hand combat, or had to fight with our family's lives hanging in the balance. In our passage, the families of the people of God that had been displaced here were originally exiled by Babylon decades before. So, in order to ensure we're thinking about the context here accurately, this means that the people of Judah had their homes burned to the ground. The men were enslaved, the women were assaulted, infants were dashed against the rocks. And the house of the Lord their God was desecrated and destroyed. All the vessels of gold crafted by Solomon were cut into little pieces and plundered. The Babylonians slaughtered the sons of King Zedekiah before his eyes. And Then after they slaughtered them, they gouged out his eyes so that the very last thing that he saw was the execution of his own sons. Then they led him in chains to Babylon. In exile, the Babylonians mocked the people of God and attempted to erase, to utterly eradicate their Jewishness by saturating them with Babylonian culture. It was dark, it was depressing, and it was enraging. Psalm 137, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion! Zion! How shall we sing? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. My point is that though Persia later conquered Babylon, Susa, the city of our story, is just, just on the opposite side of the Tigris River. The banks on the east side of the river probably look just like the banks on the west side of the river in Babylon. The lament of exile was passed from one generation to another. So whether enemies are Persian or Babylonian, exile in a foreign land, an existential threat against your people feels just about the same. So note two ideas very clearly in our first section. One, the people of God exerted their right to defend themselves and they did so to the death. And to note, very well, God is not playing games. To oppose the people of God is to take your own life in your own hands. Remember how chapter 8 ended. Many people joined the Jews out of fear of the Jews. So those who remained opposed to the Jews here in our passage had had months to change their mind, months to join the people of God. Those who attacked the people of God on the 13th day of Adar were attempting to kill and to destroy and to annihilate the beloved people of God according to the edict that had gone out throughout the land. That is, they wanted to kill the people God pledged to protect. Those who attacked God's people were directly challenging God's covenant love. For his beloved Israel. Now, through God's subtle sovereignty, his people were given the right to fight back, and the people of God exercised that right triumphantly. Haman, now executed, was still the human instrument of this attack. He was acting as a seed of the serpent, as a descendant of Agag. He attempted to destroy the seed of the woman, that is, of the covenant people of God. So remember the connection between King Saul and King Agag. The reason God tore the kingdom from Saul was because he did not do to Agag and to Agag's people what the Lord had commanded him to do. God had given Saul a holy command to destroy this evil people and every living thing. Yet, Paul kept some of the plunder, including the best of the animals. In 1 Samuel 15, when the prophet Samuel confronted King Saul about his failure to obey the Lord, Saul said that he had done as the Lord had commanded him, inferring that he had devoted to destruction every living thing. So Samuel responded, "'What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears?' And the lowing of oxen I hear. Has God asked you to do something recently? Has God commanded you to do something recently? Did you obey the prompting of His Spirit? Did you ignore him and his word? Or maybe you partially obeyed him. Or maybe you're planning on obeying him. But as we told our kids 1,000 times when they were little, Partial obedience and delayed obedience is actually disobedience. It cost Saul his kingdom. Samuel went on to say, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey Is better than sacrifice. So then, how does Saul's disobedience, his partial obedience, same thing, how does that tie back into Esther? In our first section, note that three times we are told that despite the lethal force with which they defended themselves, the people of God laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 10 and verse 15 and verse 16. Why is this curious detail recorded? Why is it emphasized three times? Why is this point so significant in the story? The point is that the Israelites are supposed to deal mercilessly with the descendants of Agag. Haman has not only lost his position and his home and his life, his hereditary line has been cut off and exposed to shame. Not only are his ten sons killed, they are hung on on wooden impaling poles so that everybody could see that Haman's line ends Here, because cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. And yet, the people of God were acting righteously. How can that be? The answer is that they are acting in obedience to God's commands and in fulfillment of God's promises to bless those who bless you and to curse those who curse you. Think about that. God is fulfilling his promise to them through them. That's amazing. Unlike King Saul, the people follow through all the way to the death And yet they take no plunder for themselves. For the people of God, this is a holy war. They are instruments of righteousness and judgment in the war between the the holy seed of the woman and the wicked seed of the ancient serpent going all the way back to Genesis 3. In our introduction to Esther several weeks ago, I told you that this book is every bit as dramatic and every bit as gruesome and every bit as glorious as the book of Judges. In Esther, we have laughed and we have cried and at places we may even have cringed. But now, 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 It's time to celebrate. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month that all of these things occurred. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. So, here we see that the people of God are setting an official holiday. They're building it into their calendar to celebrate. The people are formally obligating themselves, verse 27 To party for two days of singing and food and fun. To be clear, through the letters that were sent, Esther and Mordecai obligated not just the Jews, but their descendants to celebrate. Verse 28 that without fail they would keep these two days at the appointed time every year. These days are to be remembered throughout every generation, in every clan, in every province, and in every city. These days of Purim should never cease to be commemorated. The people of God never, ever wanted to forget what God had done for them in delivering his people because the reversal God had orchestrated for his people is worthy of ongoing celebration. The people of God named their season, this this holiday, this celebration, Purim after the casting of lots called Pur. So remember back, all the way back to chapter 3, verse 7. When they cast Pur, the casting of lots fell out 11 months, which provided time for the events of Esther to unfold. By naming the date Purim, verses 24 and 25, they were acknowledging God's sovereignty even over the casting of lots. And they were celebrating the great reversal that occurred on the date that was chosen for their destruction. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. That is so comforting. Do you know that this morning, brothers and sisters? Do you know that absolutely everything that happens in your life has a purpose, a good purpose ultimately, and that not even something as, as, as small, as minuscule as, as the casting of lots or the, the toss of dice, not even that falls out outside of the glorious sovereignty of our God. Not even what appears to be the most random chance thing is outside of the authority of the king of the universe. Do you know, as we have seen in Esther, as is celebrated in Purim, that God can use even the seemingly most insignificant event like the casting of lots or perhaps one sleepless night in Susa to bring about a reversal or a transformation that is that is so great you can't even dream about what God might do. So, is there an area of your life right now where you feel utterly overwhelmed? Do you ever wonder if if God is actually active in your life, maybe you're wrestling with a sin and you gave up long ago that it could ever be conquered. Is there someone you long would come to saving faith? In Jesus but you just don't see any evidence that the Lord is actually drawing that person are you worried about something or are you waiting on something are, are, are you longing for something that's good but it just seems so far off Darkness is demoralizing. L- lack of movement can be really discouraging. So, hear the word of our great God. After predicting a time of very dark, very extended oppression the Lord reminded his people through Isaiah of their future glory. And his words were these, I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. When the Lord determines to act, he can change everything in an instant. Isaiah 60 and verse 22. Sometimes it seems like nothing at all is happening for a very, very long time. And then all of a sudden, Seemingly out of nowhere, the Lord's plan unfolds very, very quickly. The reason is because no circumstance is too challenging for the Lord, and there is no amount of opposition that he cannot overcome. Hear the words of the one true and living God. I am the Lord, and there is no other, no other God besides me so trust in him trust in him with all of your heart lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths trust him and sooner or later perhaps even when it seems least likely light glorious light will shine into your situation. God will either deliver you from your circumstance or he might deliver you in your circumstance as he reminds you of all that is already yours in Jesus, our great deliverer. You serve a God whose purposes in your life will not, cannot fail. His desire is to make you holy as he is holy, Leviticus 11 and verse 44. To conform you into the image of his blessed son, Romans 8, 29. And to work in your life. Listen very carefully. God is working in your life that which will lead ultimately to your greatest possible joy. Romans 8 and verse 32. So take heart. But this will happen not by might, nor by power, probably not according to your preferred timetable, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The people of God formally obligated themselves to celebrate so they would never forget God's subtle sovereignty and the great deliverance that God provided for them On the very day that they were to be destroyed, the day assigned to them through the casting of lots. The two most important dates on the Jewish calendar, even today, are Passover and Purim. Two celebrations of great deliverance. One was spectacular. The other one, slightly more subtle, both worthy of ongoing celebration. King Osweris imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full amount of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Oshuares, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. In other words, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The king is still taxing his people from the mainland to the coastland. Now maybe he's reinstating the tax that he had taken away from the people when when Esther became queen. Or maybe the point is Xerxes is still sitting on the throne in Persia despite everything that God had done for his people. I was thinking about these very verses here in chapter 10 as I've observed some of the vile reactions of people to the Supreme Court's glorious, glorious decision to repeal Roe versus Wade. That decision is almost as old as I am. For that long, it has been a moral blight on this nation. What a victory for those who love the sanctity of life. You want to talk about a reason to celebrate. Babies are being spared. In Tennessee, they're waiving the 30-day waiting period so that abortion is banned now. Praise God. Despite this great news, This gloriously great news that we should celebrate. You want to apply this passage? Celebrate that ruling. Despite this great news, the reaction of so many in our culture reminds us that we still live in a world fraught with sin. The same news that we're celebrating, other people believe it is the worst possible thing imaginable. Utterly opposing worldviews. And we still live under the reign of a president who not only fully endorses, but also actively promotes and even exports many forms of abject evil. But we can celebrate. We can have compassionate conversations with people. We can have truthful, direct conversations with people. But let not that mitigate your joy or your celebration. This is a day to celebrate. But no matter who sits in the White House every four years, King Jesus sits on the throne of heaven eternally. As genuinely thankful as we are for our freedoms in America, this world regularly reminds us as the people of God, we are not yet living in our true homeland. The Jews had experienced a great victory and a tremendous shift in terms of influence and in terms of power. But King Xerxes was still seated on the throne and the people of God in our story Still live in Persia. The king's acts of power and mitre, again chronicled in the king's book, which will make for some great new reading material if he has another sleepless night. We also learn that Mordecai has been promoted to the number two position in Persia in terms of power, just like Joseph in Egypt. And there are some fascinating parallels between Esther and between the story of Joseph Mordecai has been promoted to the king's right hand in the place of power which is why everyone feared him we are reminded that God put he can put his people anywhere he wants in any position he wants, any way he wants, to accomplish any purpose he wants, any time he wants, just like he did with Esther, just like he did with Mordecai. Our story closes with this note. The people loved Mordecai. He was popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people. The elevation of this righteous Jew, now seated in the place of power at the right hand of the king, calls to mind another far more righteous Jew. Who once told the council? Who once told the council that interrogated him just before he was crucified? Jesus said to them, "From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the Power of God." Luke twenty-two and verse sixty-nine. Philippians two nine tells us that God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is now enthroned in glory. Art challenged us last week to be thinking about, what's Jesus actually doing now? He's interceding for us, and he is reigning from heaven in glory, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews 10 and verse 13. But even as Jesus waits from the most exalted place in all the universe, As he waits to bring a holy war against his enemies from heaven, the miracle of the gospel, the miracle of the gospel reminds us that God the Father first executed a holy war not upon his enemies, but upon his very own Son, pouring out the full nature of his wrath in unmitigated fury so that our sins might be forgiven forever. Jesus drank in the full cup of the fury of God's wrath against sin, down down to the very last drop, so that anyone, any one of God's enemies, could become God's beloved son, or God's beloved daughter by grace through faith in Jesus, before the enemies of God are one day destroyed by Jesus, they, like the Persians, have every opportunity to repent, have every opportunity to receive the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. They have every opportunity to join the people of God before judgment falls upon them. Which is why we as former enemies of God pray for all the current enemies of God that they would become our family members before it's too late. Mordecai spoke peace to the people of God and they loved him. Ephesians 2.14 reminds us that Jesus not only speaks peace to his people, he is our peace. So we worship him. He became our peace by killing the hostility that existed among people and between all people and God. Which is why he rightly bears the title Prince of Peace. Some in this world declare peace Peace where there is no peace. But Jesus came and preached true peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. You may be sitting here this morning and thinking, you are so far away from God. You have no hope of coming into relationship with Him. That's not true. Jesus came from heaven to earth to preach the gospel. To you, so that you might be saved. Receive the peace with God that He offers to you through the blood of His blessed Son at this very hour, and you too can be saved from the wrath of God that is coming. Because then you can celebrate with us this morning. Why do we sing? Why do do we, in the 21st century, as the people of God, why do we celebrate? We rejoice because Jesus is not only the Prince of Peace. He is, in fact, the King of Glory. We rejoice because our sins, our sins have been blotted out, and our names have been written, not in the King's Book of Memorable Deeds, but in the Lamb's Book of Life. We rejoice this morning because we have experienced, we have experienced the greater deliverance to which Passover and Purim both pointed. We have been delivered from our greatest enemy, namely the inherent sin that destroys us. We rejoice this morning because we have been delivered from the holy wrath of God by the Holy Son of God, through the Holy Spirit of God. We rejoice this morning because a day is coming. We rejoice this morning because a day is coming when we will celebrate with singing and feasting, worshiping around the throne of God with some from every tongue and every tribe and every nation while we joyfully feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb we rejoice this morning because on that day not only will we be delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin but on that day we will be delivered from the presence of sin forever. On that day we will sing to the one Who has delivered us. The greater Esther. The greater Mordecai. The greater king. The great I am. On that day we will sing to the one whose greatness is unsearchable. On that day we will sing to the one who dwells in light unapproachable. On that day we will sing to the one whose glory is incomparable. On that day we will sing to the one who has no equal. On that day, we will sing to the one who alone is immortal. On that day, we will sing to the one who is undefeatable. On that day, we will sing to the one whose throne is unassailable. On that day, we will sing to the one whose church is immovable. On that day, we will sing to the one who showed by sending his son to earth that his love is provable. On that day, we will sing to the one whose promises are irrevocable. On that day, we will sing to the one whose salvation is, in fact, receivable. And on that day, we will sing to the one who proved, who proved with us that his enemies are retrievable. On that day, we will sing to the God who forever will be for us. On that day, we will sing. We will sing hallelujah. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power and wealth and fame and might and blessing. They belong to our God. And on that day, we will sing and we will feast and we will celebrate because the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he and he alone shall reign forever and ever and ever. That's the good news. That is the good news of the gospel and that is the day that we are longing for. On that day, we will celebrate forever because the reversal God has orchestrated for his people is worthy of ongoing celebration I trust that over the last several weeks that you have seen the glory of God revealed even in a book that never mentions his name that's fully possible because God's subtle sovereignty And the power of his glorious presence, it permeates every aspect of every part of our lives, every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every single day of our lives. Therefore, forever we will sing, glory be to the Father, and to his most blessed Son, and to the Holy Spirit of God. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are the one true and living God. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for your ministry. Continuously opening our eyes to see the greatness of the glory of the Godhead. I pray that as we think about the reality of who you are and what you are accomplishing in history, what you are doing right now and what you have in store for us in the future, that our hearts would be moved to celebrate, to sing with joy because of who you are and because of what you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, I I pray that these songs would just be a foretaste, just, just a taste of the joy that we will experience on the day when we sing, gather together around your throne without sin, face to face. Lead us now, I pray, in the blessed name of Jesus, amen.